So Hosea chapter 2, page 732. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children, because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers, who will give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Well, friends, uh, please keep uh, James 3, 13 to 4.10 open in front of you uh, because we're going to be spending some time looking deeply into it today. Let us pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, we come before you now completely dependent upon you, knowing that you speak to us by your Spirit and through your Word. Father, there are hard things for us to hear in today's passage and we ask that we may not shirk them, nor may we deflect them. Father, we ask that your Word may sink deep into our hearts and change them. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I'm not sure what you were thinking as we just heard that section of James read, but when I looked at it earlier in the week, this week, I thought to myself, wow, uh, this church that James is writing to is bad. You know, sometimes you stumble across parts of the New Testament, like 1 Corinthians, and you just read about this church in Corinth, and you think, wow, they are shocking. Really? They're just so bad. I'm so pleased our church is nothing like that. Well, when I read James this week, I was tempted to think that until I remembered the first sermon I preached on this series. Do you remember that? The one that I was given a hard time for, for preaching on one verse? James 1.1. See, we think that he's writing to a sick church here. What did James 1.1 say? It says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings which tells us that James is not writing to one sick church. He's writing to every church. Which tells us that what James has to say to us today, as hard as it's going to be here in parts, he thinks we need to. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you'll remember that in James 3, James addresses the tongue, how we speak, what we say, uh, the words we use. And you remember that James's main point there is that our tongue actually reflects what is going on in our hearts. Remember that? Uh, we saw, didn't we, how James, along with Jesus, makes the point that, out of, uh, that the mouth speaks uh, what the heart is full of. Well, today we start off exactly where we left last week. And if last week we ended up at the heart and we saw that the heart was the source for what comes out of the mouth, James today addresses that source. It's what he's going to be doing. He's going to be speaking to us about the state of our hearts and he's going to be speaking to us about how we can ensure our hearts are right. Here's what we're going to see. You ready? Firstly, we're going to see James describe to us two ways to live. Okay? James is going to describe to us Two ways to live. And then what he's going to do is show us the fruit of each of those two ways. The result of each way. How our lives will end up looking if we live one of these two ways. The ways of heavenly wisdom on the one hand, or the ways of earthly wisdom on the other. Let's start at verse 13. Now what James does here is he starts by speaking about these two ways to live. And what we see from the very start is that these two ways are reflected by two types of wisdom. That word again, wisdom, comes up a lot in James. Do you remember what biblical wisdom is? Let me tell you what wisdom means. So you, you know this, many of you, but whenever we stumble across the word wisdom in the Bible, wisdom is knowing how to live life in this world under God who made us in a way that makes life work. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is knowing how we go about our day-to-day in this world with all the relationships we have, with the challenges we have, with the work we have, with the families we have, under God, knowing he made us and saved us, but in a way that makes life flourish. You'll know some people are just great at this and some aren't. Well, that's biblical wisdom. Let's have a look at verse 13. James starts by saying, Who is wise and understanding among you? 
Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So James starts by telling us all that there are some amongst us who are wise. Uh, There are some amongst us who are understanding. That is, they've built up a a, a base of knowledge uh, of how things work in this world. James's point is this, that the wise and the understanding amongst us will show that wisdom and understanding by their good lives. And I think this is really interesting because I think this idea of good lives is a bit foreign to us. It's actually all through the Bible, through Paul and James as well. But I think we're quicker to say or to think, no, we're not good. We can't be good. God is good. That's good reformed theology, isn't it? Well, yes, but James shows us that there's more than that. He says that the wise and understanding amongst us can live good lives. But notice what he does then. He shows us the shape of that good life, what that good life looks like. And the shape of the good life is this. It is life lived serving others. Okay? Now, just to show you, I'm not making it up. This is where it is. Look at verse 13. By deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Humility. See, we think humility is this sense of, oh, it's not about me, it's not about me, it's got to be about you, think less about me, less about me, more about you, more about you. Remember what C.S. Lewis says about humility? It's a wonderful little quote. True humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Lovely, isn't it? See, the humble person doesn't think it's not about me. They just learn to stop thinking about themselves. Instead, they think about others. They serve others. They lay down their lives for others. Do you want to know what the good life is that James is talking about here, according to the Bible, that the wise and understanding amongst us live? It is deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Okay, but remember, we're being shown two ways to live here, and that's just the first. Now it gets a bit ugly. Verses 14 to 16, see that? James says this. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you'll find disorder and every evil practice. Firstly, did you see where this envy and ambition lives? (laughs) Not in our minds, but in our hearts. Again, we come to this idea that James has touched on, that our hearts are the places that drive our lives. They're the seats of emotion and passion and desire. And from out of our hearts do we operate. James is saying here there's actually another wisdom at play in how people operate in this world. Actually, how people operate in this church. And what he's saying is this. He's saying there are some of you who are truly wise. You humbly lay down your lives for others. You know and live the good life. But others of you are wise in a different way. You're not driven by a love of others. You're driven by a love for self. See verse 14, says it there, bitter envy, selfish ambition. Gee, that's ugly. (laughs) Bitter envy. That stinging jealousy of others. Someone else gets noticed. Someone else gets complimented. Someone else gets rewarded. And you think to yourself, that is not fair. 
They didn't deserve that. I worked harder. But what you say is, oh, good for them. No, I guess they deserved it. And then we see selfish ambition. See that? That burning rivalry against others. Where you see everyone else as a competitor. And anyone else's success sort of crushes your spirit. And you think to yourself, I'll fight harder. I'll work longer. I'll present better to get back in front. That's what you think. What you say is, oh, great. We're all sort of working together here. See, James says that these are the things that drive us. And let me say this. If this is you, and it will be many of us here, let me say this. What you do will not be as ugly as what James describes here when it comes out. Because, no, here's what we do. We're very smart. We actually learn to manage these things. We've learned to massage them. We've learned to socially appropriate them. But they are our levers. They are our drivers that sit on our hearts and direct our thoughts and our ways. And James tells us that that sort of wisdom is not heavenly. It is not spiritual. It's not from God, but the opposite is from the earth. It's unspiritual. See that? It is demonic. It is how Satan himself would have you live. Now, verse 17 Let me jump to that, please. Look at that. James again flips back to this first way to live uh, and he addresses what the wisdom from heaven looks like. He describes it in eight ways. I'm not going to go into any of them except to say this. James here is describing Jesus. That's what he's doing in verse 8. Sorry, verse 17. That's what he's doing. He's describing Jesus. James is saying if you live wisely, if you live with a heavenly wisdom, you'll end up looking like Jesus. I want you to think right now about the Jesus you meet on the pages of the New Testament. The Son of God who walked and talked and forgave and rebuked and loved and wept. Who gave his life. Listen to James' description of what we will be like if we become truly wise with a heavenly wisdom. We'll be pure. Peace-loving. Considerate. Submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, unhypocritical. It's Jesus. <laughs> James is saying if you, lived, you learn to live the, the, the heavenly-minded life, you'll end up looking like your Lord who you so love. Can I say this is heavy? Uh, this has been heavy. But let me go back over just quickly what we've seen. James has described two ways to live, uh, a heavenly uh, wisdom and an earthly wisdom. Uh, The American uh, author, preacher Tim Keller has a bit to say on this section, and this is what he says. He says that James at this point is putting before us two choices, which are these. Okay, You can live my life for me. That's one way you can choose to live. My life for me, where, where, where our days are about our comfort, our pleasure, our success, our happiness. And, and when you think about it, that is the best the world's got to offer, right? That is exactly what the world offers us. James is right when he calls it earthly wisdom because that's what our earth, our world, gives us. Aren't we told by our schools and our universities, even Christian ones, our media, big business, friends, family, that our comfort, our pleasure, our success, our happiness is the most important thing. Why is that? Because it's wisdom, friends. Earthly wisdom. 
My life for me, Keller says that's one way, but he goes on to explain the other this way. He says, there is my life for me, but there is also my life for you. It's an approach to life which humbly, meekly seeks to put others first. My life for you. And not in the big decisions, so someone's about to get hit by a car, you push them out of the way and you take the hit. Nothing like that. But the hundreds of, hundreds of little decisions, day by day, that you make as a, a parent and as a family member and as a colleague and as a neighbour. Those decisions where you're tempted to put first your comfort, your pleasure, your success or your happiness. And Keller goes on, he says this, he says, if you live my life for me, you will have a taste of hell. You'll have a taste of hell. That wisdom is demonic and it will give you a taste of what hell will be like, where everyone does not turn outwards to serve and love and engage with others, but rather in hell where people turn inwards and become impotent and isolated and alone in their individualism. You can have that right now. And if you live my life for you, you'll have a taste of heaven. For heaven will be the joy of living lives, worshipping Christ forever and living in the service of others. Now, he goes on to say that what that means is every day, a hundred times a day, as you sit at home on your lounges around our dinner tables, in the decision you make as to will I help with the kids or not, you have a taste of heaven or hell. In the decision you make about what website will I visit, what will I post on Facebook, you have a, you have a taste of heaven or hell. There's two ways to live. I want to read you an email I got this week from someone, a very personal email actually, uh, but it's with permission. The reason I'm reading this will become clear, I hope. It's referencing last week at church actually. Uh, Sunday's sermon was extremely moving for me. As a single parent, I do not think I've been a very good parent. However, I'm so thankful that through the grace of God, I'm forgiven for my sins because it's hard when you hear a sermon like last Sunday and it regurgitates some of the deep emotions that you've felt from earlier days. Words are extremely painful. I can remember my father saying awful things to me and after going to hide under my house. I also remember when my first husband treated me awful as well. But then I wasn't much better to my children. I showed them little love. I thought that if I put a roof over their head and fed and clothed them, that that is what a mother did, to provide security when there was no father around. I did not know how to show them love, nor did I remember having the time. I don't think I even read them a book, since I was such a bad reader myself, and to read aloud would have just shown them that I was hopeless. When I met my second husband, he greeted me each morning with, good morning, something I'd never heard or done before. He showed me how to start to love my children. But that was only part of it. When I started going to Norwest Anglican, I learned what real love was. I learned the love of God and what that does to people when they have it. People like, and three women who are named here, which I won't name, just to name a few ladies that I've become close, close friends with. But it doesn't stop there, which brings me to my second point. Last Sunday after church, I visited a customer in her late 70s who feels very lonely. Her husband has early stages of dementia and she feels neither of her daughters care about her. 
But because of what I've learned through a sister in Christ at Norwest, I was able to comfort her in prayer. Through the love of God, I felt I was able to show that to her she can rely on him to comfort her when she felt lonely. I left her home feeling good that I could be used in that way. You may not realise it, but that email reveals, describes two ways to live. That someone actually walks into this church desperately broken. Like all of us, actually, when we walk in, but she's just able to articulate it. And then she meets three women who are wise and who are humble and who operate in their lives by thinking, my life for you. I know that's the case because I know all three women. They operate by heavenly wisdom. Do you see what happens? A life is transformed. The testimony, the witness of heavenly wisdom in the lives of those three women is irresistible. And that woman who walked in here needed to know more about what made those women the way they were. And in time, she comes to meet their Lord, now her Lord. She comes to trust in Jesus. And the next thing, she's out praying with people and pointing them to her God, the God of all grace. There are two ways to live. Well, James now goes on to describe what people's lives will look like when they live either way. He's going to show us now where heavenly wisdom will lead us and where earthly wisdom will lead us. Okay, that's where we're up to. Can you please look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 3? Listen to this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. He's writing to every church. Please notice that James here uses the language of warfare, of fighting, of battles, and of killing. And James is saying here that if your heart is filled with earthly wisdom, if your heart is filled with bitter envy and selfish ambition, then that will take a shape in your life and it will look like warfare. Why? Because if your heart is filled with envy and ambition, then everyone else becomes an opponent. Everyone else becomes a combatant. People become things to beat, people to overpass, uh, to improve upon, to overtake. And James, he uses the strongest language he can, the language of warfare, to describe what will happen to a church like us, a gathering of God's people when people's hearts are earthly. He tells us they'll become war zones. We'll become a war zone. He goes on. Notice what else happens. God stops answering the prayers of his people. See that? When people's hearts are driven by envy and ambition as well as pleasure, they forget about God. It's almost like that we, we have these sick relationships with each other, which then impact the very way we commune with our God. And so people stop asking God for help. And when they do ask, uh, their hearts are so earthly and unspiritual and demonic, they're so driven by enormous self-interest that God doesn't listen. And when he, he doesn't give to people because they ask according to their will, not according to... Your will, Heavenly Father. One more thing to show you here. 
and it's in verse 4. Can you see how verse 4 translates the first word of the original? This is striking. He says, you adulterous people. Can you see that? Start of verse 4, you adulterous people. Uh, that's actually not accurate. That's not what the original says. In the original, James calls the church, you ready? You adulteresses. You adulteresses. Now, that's strange. Why would James speak to a mixed gathering of men and women and refer to them as female adulterers, adulteresses? Well, it's because throughout the whole Bible, there is a picture painted of God being like a groom who loves his people like a bride. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea that we had read, Ephesians 5, Revelation 21, and on and on. See what James is saying? He's saying this. Our worldliness is like a wife who betrays her husband in the deepest of ways and takes off with another man. You see, we think we're just a bit distracted. God says we're having a full-blown affair. And we learn that God is like that husband who loves us not merely with a divine love and not even with merely a father's love, but God loves you with the intimate love that a husband reserves for his wife. That's what it's saying. And that's what the my life for me, that's what the life of envy and selfish ambition will lead to, an affair with the world that will ultimately make you hate your God. That's a bit strong. No, 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 that's the word enmity. Hatred. That's the fruit of earthly wisdom. But then James leaves us with one more picture. A picture of what our lives will look like when we are driven by heavenly wisdom. This could actually be the the centrepiece of James's letter. Okay, listen to this next section. It starts in verse 6 where we read this. God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. And he goes on. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will lift you up. Do you see what James is saying? He's saying if we are wise with the wisdom of Christ, if we are wise with the wisdom of this world, then our lives will take this shape. We'll become people who love to submit. We'll become people who grow in humility. We'll become people who want to lay down our rights. We'll be people who give over. We'll be people who long to see the desires and longs of our heart be shaped and changed. We will want to die to self that we might live for Christ. But more than that, we'll grow to hate the sin in our lives, not to tolerate it or enjoy it, but to hate it. So we'll resist the devil. We'll stand up to the father of lies who whispers in our ears daily, hourly, your life for you. Your life for you. We'll hate our sin, so we'll wrestle with it. See that halfway through verse 8? Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Wash your hands. That is, we'll wrestle with the sin that we do. 
purify your hearts. We'll wrestle with the sin that we long to do in our hearts. How do we do it? Verse 9. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Friends, that is all the language of repentance, of turning from our sin and turning back to Jesus. Repent. Be broken of your sinfulness. Hate it. Fight against it. And cast yourself, throw yourself at the one who died in your place and on your behalf for your sin. And as you humble yourselves before the Lord, knowing you've got nothing, actually knowing you bring less than nothing, That's not quite true. You do bring something, don't you? You bring sin and disgrace. Well, then knowing you bring sin and disgrace to the table, God will find you at the very point he needs to find you. And he will lift you up. Do you see the rich irony? If you want to be whole, you have to know you're in pieces. If you want to be whole in Christ, you have to know you're in pieces and seek him. I want to finish by showing you one more thing. Last thing, I promise. It's about eight sermons in here today. See, as we've been reading this, it seems like James has been saying that there are people in the church who are heavenly minded and they're here. And there's people in the church who are earthly minded and they're here. And it'll become clear that who they are uh, is obvious by the way they live. And what we need is for the earthly minded people to become more heavenly minded. That is not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. You ready for this? This is very important to notice. It is not that some people are heavenly minded and that some people are earthly minded. What James is actually saying is that every one of us is earthly minded. All of you are earthly minded. But only some of you believe it. That's what he's saying. Let me just demonstrate that. So we all hear that our earthly mindedness makes us like a cheating wife. And some of us think, I'm not like that. Yep, earthly minded. And others of us hear that our earthly mindedness makes us like a cheating wife and we think, wow, that stings, but that's right. Yep, heavenly minded. Because here's the thing. In chapter 4, verse 6 to 10, James is describing the life of those who live with heavenly wisdom. But listen to what he says. Listen to this, ready? He says this. Submit yourselves then to God. Here's the question. Why would you need to submit yourself to God if you're already heavenly minded? Because you're actually earthly minded. But you know it. James says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double minded. Why would you need to stop sinning internally and externally if you're heavenly minded? Because you're actually earthly minded. But you know it. James says, grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why would you need to repent before God if you're heavenly minded? Because you're actually earthly minded, but you know it. Here's the key. The people who are heavenly minded are at the same time the very people who are earthly minded. They are the same people. The difference is the heavenly minded amongst us know they're earthly minded. They know it, they hate it, they fight it, and they give themselves over to Christ. And that is why verse 6 says, look at verse 6, He gives us 
more grace. Just you ask yourself, why is that there? Why would God give us more grace? Why would God give us more of his undeserved favour? Because we need it. Because he knows that we are frail and feeble, earthly-minded people. So God gives us more grace. Yes, he gives us Jesus' atoning death on the cross, us undeserving sinners. We get that, we're changed, we hate our earthly-mindedness then, we want to live for God, we want to be heavenly-minded, and then what happens? Life. Life. We fail hourly. We slip into the wisdom of this world. And then verse 6 crashes through and says to you, God gives you more grace. God pours out more favour. God beckons to you to come to him again. Brothers and sisters, if you can't remember the last time you were on your knees asking God for mercy, asking God to change you, to give you more grace, to break your adulterous earthly mind and to give you a pure and humble heavenly mind. What a great time today it is to do it. I'm not taking questions today. Instead, we are going to confess and repent. I think it's fitting. So in a moment, I'm going to give you an encouragement. Uh, I'm going to encourage you, actually, to take some time to come before God And I'm going to ask those of you who are so desirous and able to get on your knees before God. That's right, to actually get on your knees. I'll do it here. Now, some of you are thinking, I look like a fool. Stop being earthly-minded. This is between you and God. Now, there are others here who, for a range of reasons, medical and otherwise, won't be able to get on your knees. You know what? It actually doesn't matter at all as long as you are on your knees in your heart. I want you to confess your sin. I want you to confess your adulterous ways. I want us to confess that we are earthly minded. And as you so do it, you'll find yourself to be heavenly minded, actually. And then I'm going to lead us in prayer. And then together we're actually going to say the assurance to one another. Will you now take a moment to come before God on your knees, physically or metaphorically, and confess your sin? Have mercy on us, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out our transgressions. Wash away all our iniquity. Cleanse us from all our sin. For we know our transgressions and our sin is always before us. Against you, you only have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely we were sinful at birth, sinful from the time our mothers conceived us. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach us wisdom in the inmost place. 
cleanse us with hyssop. We will be clean. Wash us and we'll be whiter than snow. Hide your face from our sins. Blot out all our iniquities. Create in us pure hearts, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within us. Amen. Will you please stand? It's a long way up. It's part of the point, actually. You should never feel better. You should never know more fully what Christ has done than when you spend time breaking, being broken by him before him. But you are not broken people. You are forgiven, restored, and whole people as you trust in Jesus. Let's say this assurance together. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. We're going to sing.